Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. I felt like my self-identity was, I was lost. I didn't know who I was anymore because my identity was so linked to me working, you know, having all these projects and making things happen. And, and then suddenly I was just being a mom. Hello and welcome to Don't Stop Us Now. I'm Claire Hatton. And I'm Greta Thomas. And we're on a mission to help you achieve your goals. We're all about sharing the secrets of the world's most innovative and pioneering successful women. Hear their uplifting stories and practical advice right here. Yes, right here. And if you're enjoying this podcast, then why not sign up for our newsletter at hello at don'tstopusnow.co and keep listening for this week's latest episode. Hello, and welcome to a pretty special episode today. Exactly. Not only is it special for our guests coming up, but also because, dear listeners, this is our 100th episode of Don't Stop Us Now. Woohoo! We started out nearly three years ago, initially with one episode every two weeks, and then a year ago we upped the ante during COVID and decided to release an episode every week. And here we are today at 100. So thank you for being here with us and a particular shout out and a grateful thank you to you if you've taken the time to review us or send us a message. I can't tell you how much that means to us. That's for sure. You know, we're always so keen to hear from you. In fact, we'd love your thoughts. Are you enjoying the mini episodes we're putting out every other week currently? Please email us and tell us what you think. Shall we keep going? At hello at don'tstopusnow.co. Now to today's episode with a woman who has a pretty incredible background. Her name is Mona Aori. She's a Tunisian who started out as a bridge engineer, including working for seven years in Japan. I know that fact alone is saying something because Japan is well known for being not an easy place for women to work. Exactly. And Mona went on to start her own successful business in Tunisia. But then... Because of the Arab Spring Revolution that you'll hear about, she had to flee her country to start over in Singapore. That proved to be much harder than she thought. So Mona eventually decided to refocus her career to support other female entrepreneurs. Mona now works for Beacon Fund, which is investing in female entrepreneurs in Southeast Asia. Not only that, she started and runs her own online community for female entrepreneurs called Womentum. In this episode, you'll learn why Mona left Tunisia to build bridges in Japan, how her successful business and life was devastated by the Arab Spring uprising, how, after losing her identity as a new mom in a new country, she picked herself up 
and turned her experience into a business supporting other women and the common mistakes female entrepreneurs make and how to overcome them. So without further ado, please enjoy this 100th episode of Don't Stop Us Now with the vulnerable and determined Mona Auri. Mona Auri, welcome to Don't Stop Us Now. Thank you for having me, Claire and Greta. Oh, it's our pleasure and we're really excited. Where are you speaking to us from? You're in Singapore, yes? Yes, I am in Singapore and I've been really looking forward to the podcast today. So thank you for having me. Likewise. Now, a question we ask all of our guests, we find it's really helpful for our listeners to get started with is, you know, if you met someone at a dinner party that you hadn't met before and they said, oh, what do you do, Mona? How would you briefly describe what you do? Well, it's a hard question for me. I've got many, many hats, so it's, it's been always challenging to stay concise, but one thing always comes to mind, it's really close to my heart, and my 10-year-old would describe the way my work, she would say, mama is helping women entrepreneurs' dreams come true. And, you know, I often think there's a reason why she came to think that way, perhaps because, you know, I always talk about helping women entrepreneurs and supporting them and helping them get to success. And so, yeah, that would be the way I would describe my work. That's great. It sounds very apt indeed. And sounds like you've got a very astute 10-year-old daughter. Yes, is it a daughter? Yeah, I I do have a 10-year-old daughter and eight-year-old daughter. So uh, they are amazing. Of course, I'm biased, but they are amazing. (laughs) Speaking of children, how about if we rewind to your childhood and your early days? You know, I think you grew up in a, an interesting location and how would you describe your childhood? Well, I was born in Tunisia, in North Africa, and I particularly was born in the countryside of Tunisia, in the mountain area. And I grew up pretty much with nature, running around in the fields with my father, and I have plenty of memories there. You know, Tunisia, I'm not sure our audience knows about it, but it used to be the food supply for Rome at the time. So we have plenty of ruins and green fields, and it gets really beautiful in the spring. Much of my childhood was really spent in nature and, of course, at school. Wow. And what were your parents doing in the countryside there? My father was a teacher in a secondary school in a neighboring bigger city. And so we chose to live there because we had a a small farm and my parents really loved living in a farm. My mom at the time was not working. And, you know, forgive my ignorance, but what was Tunisia like then? You know, what was the society like then? Tunisia got its independence in 1956 from the French, so we were a French colony. But we got pretty lucky, uh, you know, like in Singapore, Mr. Likwanyu, how uh, he built Singapore. I think we have a very similar leader who liberated Tunisia from France, and he was very strategic in the way he wanted to build the country, and he did two amazing things. The first one was to allocate a third of the budget of the, the country to education, as he knew that that needs to be done. And the second one, actually, it surprises most people when I tell them, is that they gave the rights for women to vote. And that was in 1956, the right to be able to divorce and, of course, to go to school, and which 
obviously wasn't the case before that. But if he, I can give you a, a benchmark, Switzerland granted women the right to vote in 1974. Gosh, yeah. so <laughs> he was visionary. So we were way ahead. He was visionary. He's, he was a, a lawyer. He studied in France, and he negotiated his way out of the colonization. Of course, it, it took a while for the French to go out, but he did it really in a smart way, in a diplomatic way. That was a game changer for us because, you know, it set us on a strong start. And especially for women, they're really empowered and entrepreneurial and ambitious. And and so I grew up in that environment in, in Tunisia, pretty open mind. We call it the jewel of North Africa. Pretty proud with the way Tunisia did before the revolution, I would say. Yeah, no, definitely. And how did you imagine your life would be when you were young? Well, I was good at school and I thought, okay, I want to I be an engineer. I want to be a doctor. I, I didn't know exactly what I wanted to be, but I knew that, you know, pursuing my studies until the end, that was something that I wanted. Then you ended up going and studying to be an engineer and a bridge engineer at that. What made you do that? When I finished high school and, and uh, it was time to go to university, I wanted to do biology and research. Um, but at the same time, I loved building things with my hands. And then also I was fascinated with how can riches can arise from the ocean. It was really fascinating. And there was an option to do civil engineering. And I was like, oh, my God, I would love to do this. And I would love to study structural engineering. And I did some research at the time, talked to my parents and that was it. I went to the engineering school and it was a lot of mathematics <laughs> and physics and mechanics, but I loved it and I felt really home. And I think you practiced as an engineer for quite some time and then you moved to Japan. Yes, that's right. So the trend with Tunisian people is that when they graduate, they would like to pursue their studies abroad. And and most people go to France because it's closer and also because of the language. We speak fluent French. And so it seems to be like the obvious place to go and pursue your studies. And there were amazing engineering schools in France. For me, I felt like France, it's like I knew it. We watched the French TV and, you know, we read the French magazine. And I didn't feel like I would be stimulated by the experience enough. But I didn't know where to go. And one day there was this announcement about Japanese scholarship offered by the Japanese government in over 180 countries, because Japan really wanted to diversify its academic environments and ecosystems, and they wanted to bring more foreigners to study. And so when I saw it, it was like I always wanted to go. And I, up to today, I don't know how to explain it. I don't know why. When I saw that announcement, I was like, that, that, that's what I'm looking for. And so I applied and, and I got accepted. And, and so I did my master's degree in, in engineering there. And so after your master's, you worked in Tokyo for some years. How unusual was it to be a female engineer? Because we hear a lot about sort of the gender differences in sort of corporate Japan and how difficult it can be for women to sort of rise up the ranks. But what was your experience? 
it's a real challenge in Japan, I would say, even up to today, even though there are so many things with the administration of Abe that try to empower women, but the cultural, the societal expectation for women are so, so severe to the point that there were in my classroom in the master's, during my master's degree in engineering, I had two other girls. So we were three out of 20, very similar ratio to Tunisia or as a matter of fact, any ratio around the world at that time. Hopefully now it's a little bit better. And these girls, they were brilliant. They presented amazing results in their thesis. And then when the time came to look for a job, and I was like, yeah, I'm going to you know, fill in my CV and go look for a job in Tokyo. That's just, it was obvious to me. No, for them, there was no question to go to work in an engineering firm. It was for them to go to the city hall and get a position in the public sector. And I could not believe the reasons why. They said, no, we're going to get married. And this is more for the boys. It's not for us. And maybe they are on the traditional side of things uh, you know, among Japanese, but that's the norm. And when I went to this uh, Japanese firm, that was my first job in Tokyo, I was really excited to be accepted for the job and everything. I was the only one. But what helped me was the fact that I was a foreigner, so they didn't really know what to do with me. Yeah. So <laughs> that was really, really helpful in that sense. But being foreigner alone wouldn't have been enough. I think speaking the language and carrying myself in the way I did carry myself was very important to establish trust and respect. It took some time for them to include me in all the meetings. I had to fight my way through to really kind of be part of all the meetings and be part of the new interesting projects. And sometimes I don't even hear about them and I'm not less qualified. So Mm. It was a bit of a struggle, but nothing compared to the Japanese women. Wow. It's just such a waste, isn't it? Now, you you worked in Japan for a a few years and then returned to Tunisia, where you set up your own B2B consultancy, so ran your own business. I think you were liaising between Japanese businessmen and the Tunisian government. But then your dreams were abruptly dashed, weren't they? Can you tell us what happened? So when I went back to Tunisia in 2006 from Japan, after seven years there, I was really filled with energy and, you know, desire to give back to my country. I was like, I learned all this bunch of things and, you know, I'm ready to go back and, you know, help out. And so I went back and visited the, for example, the Japanese embassy and, you know, some Japanese institutions in there who are doing amazing work. And I very quickly realized that they needed help. And so that's how... I set out to help them with uh, development projects like desalination plants or bridges, all these large infrastructure projects that are financed by the taxpayer money of Japan. But the government agencies were holding all the approvals and, and all of that. And so we needed to do a lot of facilitation. And so that's how I got to do that basically two months after I arrived in 2006. And it was like full on for the next five years. Meanwhile, like I got married and kind of settled in Tunisia, but always with the idea to leave at some point to, to Asia, but not necessarily immediately because things were really going well. In 2011, the Arab Revolution happened and 
get a little bit emotional about this, but... And it began in Tunisia too, didn't it? You know, what we call the Arab Spring, sort of, if I'm right, began in Tunisia, yeah? It did. So it was one incident that led to a young unemployed university graduate who was really angry with the unemployment rate situation and with the regime that's so oppressive for so long, for over 30 years. Because, of course, the, the father of Tunisia, the leader of Tunisia, is, is gone, right? He's yeah. off. So a dictator took over for over uh, 30 years, and, and he's been really messing up things. And so it resulted in a very angry young generation. And so in a moment of anger, this young man has immolated himself. And it's a very, of course, very sad story to the point that the next day, millions of people took on the street. And that caused the dictator to leave. And, and so we suddenly found ourselves with no, whether the military or the police takes over. And, and we were all in disbelief, but at the same time, very happy that the dictator left. It gives us a sense of victory, the people's victory, this hope for freedom. That happened three days after I gave birth to my first child. Gosh. Yeah, it was a bit... Uh, <laughs> bit of a tough time there. absolutely and did you feel um personally sort of unsafe what was it like in the streets of tunis at the time we feared for our lives because the police was with the dictator so the people didn't trust the police anymore we trusted the military so the military was trying to protect the population but then when you you don't have power then you know there's looting there are militias that form very quickly Remember, this is, comes at a time where there's unemployment, there's a lot of you know, social disparities and angry people. So they were looting like the residential areas. And, and it happens that we live in the, the neighborhood where the Carthage, uh, where is the presidential palace, and, and there were militias attacking streets. And, and then that was really, really scary because when you have a newborn, I think, I don't know whether it's the hormones or we were hiding under the bed with a newborn and, uh. you know, it was quite brutal. And at that point in time, we start, I started to think, you know, it is time probably to, to leave. Even though it's a little bit of, I would use the word coward in a way, because, you know, I, I wanted to be also in the streets, you know, celebrating the freedom of my country and be part of rebuilding the post-revolution country and be part of that. But somehow, instinctively, I felt in danger. That sounds pretty traumatic. And I know you went to Singapore, but how hard was that to sort of arrange? And presumably it was all done pretty hurriedly. Yeah, we got very, very, very lucky from all point of view. I don't know whether this is the universe or... But, you know, my husband, I turned to him one day and I said, we have to leave the country now because Islamists were coming in and they want to take over the country. And so he tapped into that network and then he started interviewing and it was he got the job. He flew to Singapore from the country. It was also hard to go to the airport. And I spare you all those details, but it was a hassle to go to Singapore and then interview, came back, got accepted. They understood the, the situation. So we, we wrapped up everything. Within two weeks, we packed everything and we took our suitcases and our newborn and landed in a service apartment in, in Singapore. And up to today, our house, our furniture, our 
books. Everything is still in a container in Tunisia. And so we started a new life here in Singapore. We, you know, we made it our home and we felt safe, which is a huge relief. That was a very, very good thing for the family. And I think I took that decision and I pushed for it and I'm happy I've done it, even though there is a flip side to that, which probably I'll share with you later. <laughs> right. Okay. Remind me to come back to the flip side. <laughs> And so there you are in Singapore with a newborn. I'm sure you you didn't look for work. It was great. Your husband already had that job. When did you look to start re-entering the workforce? Okay, so that's the flip side. Ah. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> nice, nice one, Greta. <laughs> well done. <laughs> So when you take a decision driven by, you know, safety, you know, family first, the people I care about first, I didn't think through what's going to happen to me. After all these years, I felt like invincible in a way, you know, anything I can attempt, there's no reason why I can't do it. I might fail, but there's no reason why I won't be able to do it. Or if I would always have a plan B, you know, what can stop me? And then, of course, your spouse is, is working and traveling and trying also to establish himself in his new work. And you find yourself in a service department with a baby. And you're like, what now? It took me weeks to realize what was going on. I thought, how hard can it be? It's Singapore. You know, it's easy. No, it's not. It's a competitive market. It's not easy to get an employment pass as a dependent. Everything went down from there for a while because for me to be labeled in a way like dependent, it was something that I couldn't conciliate with. I, I just couldn't live with. Yeah. And the second is, you know, being a mom, right? How do you take care of, of a small child with no support system? It, what happened was I felt like my self-identity was, was, I was lost. I didn't know who I was anymore because my identity was so linked to me working you know having all these projects and making things happen and and then suddenly I was just being a mom and I love being a mom of course but the change in identity suddenly there was no transition and I think that's where I got really really depressed and I, I didn't know what to do because I'm an entrepreneur, my expertise, my business model is not applicable here in Singapore. And so I had to accept that for a certain time, I would need to kind of figure it out. And so that wasn't an easy period in my life at all. No, it sounds really tough, really tough. But as you said, many women do go through this identity crisis. But let alone also changing countries. Oh, absolutely. Suddenly. So you had the sort of the double whammy there of, as you said, you prioritise your safety, but then other things go out the window. Absolutely. That. How did you get yourself out of this? As I watched my self-confidence, you know, going down every day, I just told myself, just hang in there. Okay, I need to get up back on my feet and, you know, find a way to start a new business and network and get out there. And then I got pregnant and, and bless her, my second child, she's amazing. She's an angel and I'm so grateful she came. But it was at the time, it was really also hard to say, okay, now I'm going to go through this again. Mm. 
what do I do? This is not the plan. I want to get back on, you know, to work. I want to be part of all this. And so there was a bit of, of a turmoil right there. But eventually, when I got pregnant, I said, okay, I can't work. I can't start a business. Then I'm just going to go to do business school. So I did a business uh, administration degree. And then, you know, just to stay stimulated and, and alive and feel like I'm doing something for myself. And so I graduated when I gave birth, basically at the same time. And then just a few months later, I started Momentum because I just felt being a woman is really not easy. Even if you want it so badly, if you really, you want to build your career, there are some gender specific challenges that would slow you down or, which is not the case for my husband. My husband was the whole experience of coming to Singapore and, you know, having children has made him so complete, mm. undisturbed, unbelievable. And, and for me, it was <laughs> even, even to today, I, I really have a hard time. I'm like, it's such a different experience that we have in, in, within the same house, within the same marriage. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So you talked about that you started Womentum. What did Womentum actually do? You know, what kinds of things do you offer to women? So Womentum is an organization that helps women entrepreneurs access mentoring and business advice, also resources uh, for them to to start, especially first-time entrepreneurs. And this is over the years, we started to specialize in first-time entrepreneurs because we feel that the challenges that women entrepreneurs face the first time are different from a second time. And so you can think of it as a one-stop shop for first-time entrepreneurs to connect, to learn from each other. And I think you operate in quite a number of developing countries in Southeast Asia. Is that correct? Yes. So we started off in Singapore and very quickly saw the need even more for support in, in Cambodia and in and, and Vietnam. So we launched with, with events and even localized language resources and uh, collaboration with local partners. We're in Cambodia, Myanmar, Vietnam. And of course, we have activities with partners in Indonesia. We hire resources from the Philippines. So Southeast Asia is now becoming really a comfortable space for for Momentum's community in a way. Fantastic. Wow. I mean, you you know, that's really starting to scale to many, many, many women. And so what are the most common problems for first-time female entrepreneurs that you find? First of all, it depends on the type of businesses we're talking about. So if we're talking about brick and mortar businesses, or if we're talking about technology companies or tech-enabled companies, it's completely different type of challenges. But there are common patterns that we really need to talk about it and we need to address it, which is to plan, to have a business plan for whatever you want to build, right? So oftentimes women, what we observe are driven by a passion. There's so much passion and so much care for the cause or the problem they want to solve, that they burn out trying to solve it themselves. And it is like very difficult to stop and take the time to properly plan and talk about the financing options, whether it makes sense to actually bootstrap this business or not. Not all businesses can be bootstrapped. 
And so I would say challenge or mistake that first time entrepreneurs make and particularly for women entrepreneurs. I'm not sure whether you experience it this yourselves, Claire and Greta, but you know, sometimes we women feel like we want to do it all ourselves and, <laughs> and you know. <laughs> yes, indeed. Yes. So at least we feel that we can do many, 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 many things. And we should do many, 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 many things. Yeah. And it's sometimes hard to delegate. And so yeah. but when it comes to building a business, I feel women need to network a little bit more, especially your first time entrepreneur. Coming from a corporate environment, even with 20 years of experience, it's a very, very different skill. You need to build your, your network from scratch. Uh, so the importance of network, the importance of planning a business model and financing plan is something that we see very often. And the fourth one, which is very important and kind of consistent, this is not specific to women entrepreneurs or anything, but most entrepreneurs have that mistake, is to especially if they are in the technology space or they are tech-enabled, they would focus on the product rather than the solution. Yeah. It's so common that really invite an entrepreneur sometimes to kind of think about the problem statement and the solution. And then at the end, when you validate your, your solution, you can develop the product instead of doing that first. Yeah, absolutely. It's not about building the right it, but it's about whether you're actually solving a real customer problem. Can you explain briefly the business model for Womentum? Okay, so for Womentum, we started off as a subscription model, which obviously this is one of, of the things that are really interesting to share is sometimes we believe that a business model will work in certain markets because it works in others. It's actually not true. So we started off as a subscription model, but then Myanmar, Cambodia, Vietnam, these countries, they don't pay for subscriptions. They are on Facebook, you know, they're using, you know, free platforms and they're getting almost what they need on those platforms. So we kind of gave up that part. And so it became basically a free access, like you're using Facebook. So we have our own app that you can use for free. And then we charge on the offline events and the, the offline workshops, any offline activity that needs to be either sponsored or paid by the customers. And then the third one, which is a new uh, component that we have, which is research. And that's now become really the main income generator for Momentum to stay sustainable. Great. It sounds like you've really been innovating in that area and trying to find new ways to do that. And I know that you, you've just released a really comprehensive piece of research on women-led SMEs and, and the impact of digitization on them, which I think is you know fascinating. What were the key themes that emerged in that research? Yeah. So in this research, we tried to look how the use and the adoption of digital technologies help women-owned businesses overcome their gender-specific challenges. In a way, how does it help them perform better as women leaders and women entrepreneurs? And so we looked at three things, access to financing, and then we looked at how can technology help them access mentoring, access uh, more skills, and then the third one is how can technology help them optimize their management and operations for their businesses so that they can save costs and that they can innovate. 
what we found is that there are really common patterns, which is oftentimes the women that we interviewed are medium, small to medium enterprises, and they are from all different sectors, from construction companies to retail, to education, to F&B. What we found is that women are so conservative when it comes to growth. They are not actively necessarily pursuing aggressive growth for one reason. It's because they're worried about not having the bandwidth and about not having enough energy and time to take care of their families. Yeah, I guess that makes sense, doesn't it? Because they do have a second job, usually, which is looking after the family. And so that takes us to one of the research findings is also that we found that all the responsibilities of caregiving, be it older parents, or for children, all falls to the women, regardless, regardless of their educational level, regardless of how well, I mean, we've seen companies like a real estate and construction in different countries that these women are wealthy. (laughs) They are doing well, they're doing so well. And yet those responsibilities still fall completely on them. And the man, Mm. the spouse is actually not contributing. Yeah. You know, it's astounding really, isn't it? Because it's it's not just in developing countries, it's it's often developed countries too, although that is getting better. It is a huge disadvantage, I think. Well, yeah, the issue of, you know, equitable childcare and equitable home duties is almost almost universal, I'd say. Yeah. So th- did that research kind of depress you a little bit, that finding? Uh, Actually, no, because we also found other findings that are promising. Well, we haven't got time to go into more detail as much as we'd love to, but we will put a link to that report on our show notes if any of our listeners are interested in finding out more. But you've also recently also joined a VC firm, haven't you, as as a venture partner? What's your role there? Yeah, so uh, I joined Beacon Fund, which is um, actually a private debt fund. It does equity funding, but it's very little. The the main uh, mandate is to do debt funding for uh, small and medium enterprises. It's a gender lens investment fund. And so the reason why I'm so excited to join this fund is it really kind of weaves into the work that I'm doing, which is access to financing. And so funding women-owned businesses and women-led businesses that are already growing and want to scale is something that I'm very, very, very excited about. That sounds like a really great fit. And what are the most common pieces of advice that you give to female entrepreneurs if they ask you? Well, I think for me, the first thing that comes to mind is ask for help because you can ask for help to learn. You can ask for help to connect to someone. If you don't ask for help, you're going to just end up doing it alone and isolated almost. But to succeed in business or to build a business, you need to really be vulnerable and reach out to the people who can help us. I think we always underestimate how much people are willing to help. And really, we can miss out on that. So please ask for help. <laughs> yeah, that's great advice. And talking of advice, a question that we always ask our guests is if you could go back in time, what advice would you give your 30-year-old self? 
to be more confident in my abilities and to stop those, you know, self-limiting beliefs. Actually, the reason why I'm saying self-limiting beliefs is because I have these thoughts always like, yeah, but maybe I'm not, maybe I can't. And, and I didn't know how to stop them. And what, what happens is that actually they keep growing over time if we don't stop them. And so that's one thing that I feel like, yeah, I could have done that a little bit better or could have had a, a coach at the time. I didn't, to be honest. I had a mentor too, but, you know, I, I didn't know the importance of breaking that down and addressing it. It would have made a big difference in the way I dealt with my marriage, with, with parenting, with, with entrepreneurship. Yeah, so that's one thing. How did you actually break that down in the end? Um, I did it. <laughs> right. So, yeah. So, so it just continued. That's the thing. I, I could have told myself when I was in my 30s to stop that, but I didn't. And so I had to kind of deal with it now. And so it became a little bit bigger to deal with. And then, of course, now I'm, I, you know, I have, a, I have a coach and I go for counseling and, you know, there are things that I just talk over and, and it's very, very, very helpful. But I think it could have been better if I've done that when I was in my 30s. <laughs> yeah. Brilliant. Well, thank you so, so much, Mona. It's been so interesting talking to you and, and such a joy you know, listening to the amazing journey that you've been on. Thank you. If our listeners would like to know more about you or more about Womentum or Beacon Fund, where should they go? Okay, so you can check out our uh, website, so womentum.com. Womentum has double O, so Womentum, like momentum flipped. Yeah, love that. <laughs> we'll put that on our show notes to make sure that they can find it. Yes, and on beaconfund.asia. Uh, Brilliant. Well, thank you so much again, Mona. It really has been a joy. And we look forward to where you take Momentum and Beacon Fund going into the future. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Thanks, Mona. Thanks, Mona. I really admire how open and vulnerable Mona is in sharing her story of adapting to both living in a new country and being a new mum who still wants a career. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's something I think a lot of women feel, but not all have the courage to be so open about what they've been through. So thank you, Mona. Yes, indeed. You know, I really loved her focus on supporting female entrepreneurs in countries such as Vietnam and Cambodia too. It must mean such a lot to them to have support in forming community with other like-minded women from the region, not to mention wearing her Beacon Fund hat, the opportunity to potentially receive investment. Yeah, absolutely. It's a great portfolio Mona's carved out for herself, helping other women. Couldn't agree more. Well, that's this 100th episode done and dusted. Thank you for coming with us on this journey. We so appreciate it. We certainly do. And please do reach out and say hi on our website or email us at hello at don'tstopusnow.co. We'd really love to hear from you. And in the meantime, take care, have a great week and ciao for now. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.